streaming on Paramount Plus. You ready, Bob? Well, all right. Audiences are raving. Bob Marley is electrifying. It's the feel-good movie of the year. You dig? Bob Marley, One Love. Rated PG-13. Now streaming on Paramount Plus. Welcome in. Lake Kick is live. It is Sunday night, November 29th, the year of our Lord, 2020. Jam-packed show. It always is, especially on Sunday nights. Now, I get the sense as we wrap up November and we start to venture into, yes, December football, I get the feeling some of your teams are out of, for all intents and purposes, the races in your respective divisions and conferences, and some of your preseason goals are out the window. And I get the sense, as I do this time every year, usually earlier than this, some of your minds are starting to drift. And maybe you're asking yourself, oh, is, I mean, I'm not even paying attention to college football at this point. Well, take it from me. Just let me give you a little word of advice here. If you're drifting, come back and come back pretty quickly. There is a lot happening. Could be with your program, but it most certainly, if it's not with your program, is happening with programs that will directly or indirectly impact your program. The old Keystone program theory, as we like to call it, taken straight from the blockbuster movie Lake Placid. We've got full week 13 reaction tonight. All that stuff going on elsewhere, we're going to talk about that too. There could be one or maybe multiple major college football jobs coming open. I'm going to hit on that from a couple of different angles tonight. Also, we got eight games that we're going to react to this evening. I've got two best bets coming up. Ramen Noodle Express powered to a four and two day yesterday. More on that in just a second. And there are not just one, but several potential Nightmare scenarios coming for the college football playoff selection committee. This was always going to be an atypical year. It was always going to be a a very rough assignment, if you will, for the men and women on the college football playoff committee who are finding a way to meet in person, by the way. And so that is made even more muddy when you realize that some of the best teams in the country on paper may or may not be able to play in conference title games. So we're going to hit on all that tonight. Very happy to have you with us. If you haven't already, subscribe to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. As we did last week, and as we, I was talking to Colin, I guarantee you will end up having to do it this week. We put stuff on the channel a lot of times that never airs on the show. If we wrap up the show tonight, and then at 9.39, we get rumor out of Columbia, South Carolina, that a Gamecocks head coaching hire is imminent. Well, we're cutting an individual video for that. And if you're not on here, if you're not subscribed, if you haven't clicked the notification bell to alert you, probably just going to find out with everyone else in the morning. And no one wants to be a dullard who finds out stuff in the morning. You want to find out when it happens. So make sure you're subscribed here and follow me on Twitter at LateKickJosh. I mentioned I'm going to get back to the Ramen Noodle Express. Hey, hats off to Oklahoma State because even though we went 4-2 and two yesterday, we don't really focus on the games we win. We focus on the games we lose. Oklahoma State felt really good about them. Up 19 with the ball with six minutes to go in regulation and somehow still found a way to avoid us covering. And if that wasn't bad enough, what if I told you They fell down at the one-yard line to end the game. Yeah, that's how we lost Oklahoma State, but we still won. We're still uh, floating at about 58. I know I put 60 out last night. I don't exactly know where that number came from. We're sitting at 58% against the number this year, so extremely happy about that. Also, because I don't have time to break it down in the show, and it deserves its own section on the show, the Iowa State Cyclones, let me make this crystal clear for those of you in the back who had your doubts in the preseason, 
are going to play for a Big 12 championship. They went into Texas, and this happened on, what was it, uh, Colin? I think it was Friday. Went into Austin, and they won against the Longhorns. And so now, Matt Campbell crying in the postgame, and I was proud of him twofold. Number one, because I pull for him, about as hard as I pull for any coach. Number two, because he still has the stones to bend the bill of his cap. I mean, bend it. Like, wrap the rubber band around it with the baseball inside of it. And so I was very happy. He was doing this thing where... He don't want to. He don't want to be seen crying on national TV, and so he keeps on trying to take the headset off. And then the girl who's interviewing him keeps asking another question, and so he's just, he's just, oh, he's blubbering his way through the answers. But it was really great to see that. Now it came at the expense of Texas, but as we're going to touch on in a few minutes, may not be the worst thing in the world, Texas fans. So let's dive in. We've got a ton to get to. They played the Iron Bowl yesterday, sort of. Alabama 42, Auburn 13. Gus Malzahn, how about this little stat to lead it off here? Gus Malzahn, since 2013, that's when he was hired at Auburn, he has played Alabama, Georgia, and LSU four times each on the road. You know what his record is against the three biggest rivals for the Auburn Tigers on the road at Alabama, at Georgia, at LSU? That would be 0-12. That's Malzahn's record right now. And this year, by the way, two games they played, Georgia and Alabama, 69-16 to 16 combined score. So it hasn't been the best of years for the Auburn Tigers. Now, it's not like they were a preseason national champion pick from pretty much anyone, including those of our listeners and viewers in Lee County, Alabama. Devontae Smith continues to be the best player on the football field any given Saturday afternoon he plays. That was the case again yesterday. Seven catches, 171 yards bracketed consistently all afternoon. Auburn hasn't given up that kind of receiving performance at all this year, and yet there goes Devontae Smith. And you may look and say, oh, that's just busted coverage. Well, when you watch the replay, you understand it's the player who busted the coverage. There are these things called double moves, and when you do it out, when you do it right and you got a quarterback that can sell it, all of a sudden what looks like busted coverage is actually something most receivers wouldn't be able to get you to do. Heisman, by the way, before I dive into actual football here, the Heisman process continues to be an absolute joke. It's why we don't entertain it very much. That dude right there that Colin's showing you, number six, again, is the best football player I see on pretty much any field he steps on any Saturday, and I'm not even hearing his name. And so it's one of the most lazy processes in all of college football. That's why we don't give it a whole lot of time on the show. If you got a Heisman ballot, if you got a Heisman list or whatnot out there, and that dude, number six, is not at the top of your list, period, much less out of the folks who wear crimson, and I'm including Mac Jones with all due respect, put the pipe down was, would be my advice to you. Let's move on to actual football here. Alabama's defense is rapidly improving. I mean, this has been happening week over week now. Yesterday was just the latest installment of what has been, again, a rapidly improving unit. They'll give up some yards. They'll give up some points. There is no defense out there that's not doing that in the modern age. But they had eight tackles for loss yesterday. They had three sacks, two interceptions, gave up 2.9 yards per carry to Auburn on the ground. Their game is very situational, Alabama's defense. Their game is situational by nature. It can afford to be. You know why? Well, it's because of the guy I'm talking about, Devontae Smith, and that entire offense, that machine that Alabama has on the other side – They don't have to be a brick wall. What they have to do is be able to disrupt, which they did yesterday and have done a lot more. Pass rush has come along. They have to be able to disrupt, and they have to be able to contest. And when you watch a lot of these guys, like Malachi Moore and Brian Branch, a lot of these dudes in the secondary are true freshmen, by the way. When you watch how close they are to balls, when you watch how close they are to getting their hands on balls, you know they're playing the way that you want to play, the way Nick Saban has coached them to play, the way Alabama's secondary Played for a while, and it kind of kind of dipped a little bit. You got a lot of young guys that look to restore or look to be in the process of restoring 
sort of the the mantle, if you will, and identity of what you would expect from Alabama's defense. Something else I noticed, I kind of go back to that point I made, it's not just in the secondary. Tim Smith, constant disruptor when he's in the game in the middle, that's a true freshman. We were talking about him a lot on signing day. Malachi Moore is a true freshman who I have to go back to like Minka Fitzpatrick to remember the last time a true freshman came in and impacted things in the secondary and looked as natural and instinctive in the secondary as Malachi Moore does. Brian Branch has finally gotten on the field and starts to get more reps. He's constantly around the ball. So there are a lot of guys. Will Anderson got a sack yesterday, 31. You see him right there. Colin's showing him to you. I mean, there are a lot of guys who are standing out for Alabama defensively, and it seems like every time they show a replay of one, that's a true freshman. Oh, that's a true freshman. Hey, that kid's a true freshman. Man, let me tell you something about that guy. He's a true freshman. They're going to be around for a while. Auburn fans, you have reason to be upset. I'm not telling you you don't. You got pasted yesterday, and most people expected to see it, but yet, you know, there have been a lot of times where people expect Alabama to beat you and you pull the upset. The offense feels directionless, and a lot of what you're upset about is not so much the loss. You're, You're upset about the loss, make no mistake about it, but Alabama's beaten everyone they've played so far. What you're upset about, at least if I can draw the small sample size of those of you I've talked to as a larger indication of how Auburn fans feel, what you're upset about is overall direction. Like it, you, don't, you don't really feel like much progress has been made this year. Chad Morris came in to be your offensive coordinator. And so you figured there were going to be some elements of the offense, maybe even in a down year record-wise, where you could say, when we get fill-in-the-blank, this piece, that piece, those pieces. When we get those, this offense is going to be really, really good. Did you watch the game yesterday? I know the Auburn folks did, but those of you who didn't, every first down Auburn gets feels like a miracle. Everything that has to happen for them to get a first down right now involves, number one, the original play call totally and completely breaking down and dissolving right before your eyes. And then it involves Bo Nix escaping two or three would-be tacklers, and then he spins off one foot and then just throws one up in the air, and some dude makes a circus catch. First down, Auburn. You feel like celebrating like it's a touchdown because that's what it feels like. I don't know what their offense is. I don't know that they really know what their offense is. I asked a number of you, hey, describe Auburn's offense to me. Act like I'm a space alien. I just got here, and somehow I understand football, but I've yet to watch Auburn. And I'm about to settle down and watch him. What am I going to see? I asked you, describe the offense. Can't even describe the offense for me. Offensive line and running back, yeah, they were banged up yesterday. Therein lies the problem. There's no one who's healthy this time of year. No, no team out there is healthy this time of year. This is the, the larger underlying issue at Auburn. They don't have championship caliber depth, but very few teams have championship caliber depth. But here's the problem at Auburn. They don't have plus depth either. If you go you know, championship and then great and then plus and then average and then poor, you need to at least be in that plus caliber range when it comes to your depth situation to where when you get inevitably your injured players down the stretch, the back half of an SEC schedule, you got competent quality pieces to put out there in their place. Right now, if they don't have that true freshman Tank Bigsby, if he's not 100%, they don't have a run game. 2.9 yards per yesterday because you had a hobbled Tank Bigsby and you got Sean Shivers, DJ Williams. These are not premier SEC tailbacks is my point. Offensive line, they knew was going to be a problem two years ago. It has come to fruition. And not only that, they had some guys that were far less than 100% or not playing yesterday off of a unit that's already given them issues. Now, having said that, as much as I tell you, hey, I understand you're upset and your frustrations and whatnot, there is no traction on a move with Gus Malzahn. None. Some of you are trying to make that happen. That's not going to happen. This is Mean Girl style. Just stop trying to make Gus Hot Seat happen because it's not going to happen this year. As long as he 
does kind of like a, like a humpback whale does. If you've ever gone whale watching, which I haven't, so I don't know why I just said that. But if you've ever watched National Geographic and you've seen what a humpback whale does, it constantly lives underwater. Like 99% of its life is underwater. And then you just get the, you know, it comes up. It just it empties the blowhole, takes a breath. I guess that's what a whale does. But then it dives back down. That's Auburn football. They come up every now and then, head gets just above the surface long enough to beat Alabama by field goal, seven points, and then they go down and they get splattered. And then they come back up and field goal win again, got a narrow win, and then they go down and get trucked by 40. It's like that's how the Iron Bowl has been, but the thing about it is Malzahn's two and two in his last four games against Nick Saban. So while Saban's just salting the rest of the earth in the SEC, as long as Malzahn's figured out a way to get it done every year, every couple of years, as long as that's happening, he's not going anywhere, firstly. Secondly, even if that wasn't happened, given the present set of circumstances down there and combining that with the fact that it's just 2020 in general, so everyone's got their larger overarching philosophy on whether or not you should be making coaching and personnel decisions right now, they are not in a situation behind the scenes down there financially, or institutionally, shall I say, given the other things that are going on on the basketball side of things, they're not in a position to be making any move. And that's even if they wanted to. So that's not coming. That's not happening. I will bet you this college football playoff thermos, Auburn's not making a move on Gus Malzahn. And I love this thermos. So I'm really serious when I say I don't think that's going to happen. Alabama's the overwhelming number one team in the country right now. I am not telling you they're unbeatable because they're certainly not. I'm just saying I'd love to meet the team that's going to beat them. Is it Clemson? Is it uh, Notre Dame? Is it Ohio State? Is it someone else out there? Uh, is it Cincinnati? Cincinnati? I don't know. But I'm telling you right now, um, if you played it this Saturday, if you started the college football playoff this Saturday, I would, um, I would say a prayer for the rest of college football is what I would do. Alabama looks really, really good right now. All right, let's move on here, Colin, and let's go not necessarily to the game. I already talked about the game. Iowa State came into Austin, and they beat Texas Friday, and that was a big deal in and of itself. Iowa State, fly clones fly. They're going to the Big 12 title game, and uh, that's good for me and people of my ilk because we pull for Iowa State. However, a lot of you, in fact, I look at our traffic, probably a 10-to-1 ratio, more of you pull for the Longhorns than the Iowa State Cyclones, and that's fine. It's always been us against the world, hasn't it? But Texas falls to Iowa State, and here are the questions that I would ask because a lot of you are already asking them. So, a few months ago, seems like, yeah, I guess it was a couple months ago now, when they lost to Oklahoma, they being Texas, I thought it was done. Called the game a must win. Tom Herman and company lost the game. I thought it was done at that point. Here are my reasons. Nothing has changed. Nothing had changed before this. Really nothing changed against Iowa State. It's just it seems a lot more people that were on the fence have been pushed over that side of the fence to my side of thinking now. Is the identity clearly defined? Like, these are all questions that should be yeses at Texas. Is the identity clearly defined? I would answer no at Texas. Is it being executed effectively by default? The second answer there is no. Is the culture there conducive to success? That's a resounding no for me. Is recruiting at an elite level? Certainly that's a no right now. Even in-state, it's a no. And are we comparable to other Tier 1 programs on the field? Not even They're not even Tier 1 in the Big 12 right now. So no, they're not comparable to the other Tier 1s in college football. And if any or all of those answers are no, my final question would be, is there anything internal at Texas in terms of lack of resources or anything institutionally that is keeping you from making those answers yes? And I don't think there's a problem there. 
at least along those lines. The head coach at Texas right now is Tom Herman, has everything and then some that he needs to succeed. He hasn't gotten it done. And so I told you after the Oklahoma game, I was convinced that that was it. I was really convinced before that, but I just, if you need the results on the field, that was it. And I said it was done following OU, and I still believe that. Now, they won at Oklahoma State, didn't really care. Iowa State, whether they had won or lost Saturday, I didn't care, but I understand this is the real world. And so ultimately, you got to build a resume for and against. So a lot of you needed to see that loss. Well, now you've seen it. Texas isn't close. Texas is not getting any closer. And I don't think under the current regime there, they will get any closer. So you got senior quarterback recruiting. You see a mass exodus of in-state talent. So I could make the argument they're as close as they'll ever be. If anyone out there wants to counter with, well, there's progress, there's incremental progress. No, they're as close as they're going to be under this current regime. So I am a proponent to make a move out there. And you know I don't talk about that very loosely on this show. Remember the rule, though, because anytime we do kind of, kind of poke around and prod around and hint around about coaching moves, we on Lake Kick are only a proponent of making a move if you have a definitively better option already on the table that you know you, you've got a verbal agreement from. Do they have that? That's the multi-million dollar question at this point. I believe they will have that. I believe that big money will certainly be backing that by default. And I also believe Chris Del Conte, who is the athletic director there, is ready to make a move. Remember, it's very important. I've seen uh, Chip and the folks over at Horns 24-7 reminding the subscribers over there of this, and I'll reiterate what he said. This was not a Chris Del Conte hire. Tom Herman was not his hire, and that's pretty widely known. It's also very important to note this. When they won the Sugar Bowl in 2018, a lot of these presidents or big money folks and athletic directors, they get fleeced, totally and completely fleeced by agents. And Texas got fleeced by Herman's agent, which I believe is Trace Armstrong. I'm not hating on Trace Armstrong. I do the same thing. If I could draw extra millions of dollars out of your pockets, you better believe I'd do it. I'd do it seven days a week and twice on Sunday. And so after the Sugar Bowl, Herman and his representation want an extension. There's no reason to extend him. He's not going anywhere. Where was he going? He's not going anywhere. And yet they extended him just because when you print money, it's not that big a deal. Truly, we talked about this on the podcast the other day. It's really not that big a deal. It's like South Carolina with Muschamp. You want some more money? Okay, we'll just give you more money. It's like, where was Will Muschamp going? Nowhere. Doesn't matter. Uh, he was frowning, and so we want him to smile, so we're going to give him some more money. Well, Chris Del Conte was not on board with that at the time. So I don't feel at all like maybe from afar you view it this way, but when you get on the ground in Austin, this is not some athletic director married and attached at the hip with the head coach. No. So I believe all the factors are in play here. Let me be clear. Urban Meyer is the number one candidate by 10 miles. You go after Urban Meyer, you ask and ask and ask until he can't say no to you. You make it happen. You do exactly what Alabama did with Nick Saban, and you guys tried to do with Nick Saban. You failed there. You need to succeed here. Urban Meyer needs to be the head coach at Texas. That's your guy. Selfishly, I'd love to see it happen. Everyone in our business would love to see it happen. But I also want Texas to be really good. The sport, some people say, is not as good with this program down or that program down. Most of the time, that's a mirage. Most of the time, the health of college football is going to be just fine whether your team's good or not. And the health of college football is fine now. I'm just saying... It would, it would take, you know, the shock panels when you're trying to revive someone. It would, that's kind of what it would do to college football. It would give a lot more life, especially to the Big 12. Because right now, it's kind of, 
Even in college football terms, the Big 12 has kind of become flyover country. And to be honest with you, it's not even flyover country. It's kind of like a dead end sign. Because no one's going to the West Coast to talk about anything either. We're just being completely honest with ourselves. And so people get uh, to about Fayetteville, Arkansas, and then they kind of say, all right, this is where the Big 12 starts. So this is where the edge of the world is for college football right now. And they turn back around, and they go to the Midwest and the South, and uh, I don't want it that way. So I'd love to see Urban Meyer there. Nothing about the remainder of 2020 is going to change this either, by the way. So I would suggest if you're a Texas fan and you're on board with that line of thinking and you think Urban Meyer is your guy, which I do, I would advise you to root hard for USC. Because I don't think Notre Dame's coming open. And it's pretty widely speculated out there that Notre Dame, USC, Texas, those are the only places that Urban Meyer would even entertain coming back to the sport for. Notre Dame's not going anywhere, obviously. Just root for Clay Helton at USC. Keep him in that chair as long as you can so that you don't have any competition on the market out there. And if Urban Meyer is not the head coach at Texas. It's just because he didn't want to coach, period. It's not because some other job and some other suitor out there outbid you or put together a better package. And listen, even if those other jobs did come open, Texas is the place. Like, out of those jobs, Texas is the place. So again, like I said about 2020, when you look down the road a little bit, you've got a game at Kansas State this Saturday. I think Texas opened as a little over a touchdown favorite. Couldn't care less what happens there. They play Kansas to end the year. Couldn't care less what happens there. Nothing about the future of this program is going to change one way or the other based on the final two weeks. Make your decision, and we have pretty strong indication and reason to believe it's going to happen this week, a decision. Not, not maybe publicly, but a decision. Make it now. Be convicted in it. I would suggest you should have already made it, but let's let the past be the past, and let's let the future be now. I think that was a Joe Dirt quote. Oh, boy. Uh, dead air is not what we're supposed to do, but I'm just pausing for a second. I'm trying to collect my thoughts because now we're going to transition to a much different culture. As much as there's talk at Texas about a potential coaching change, there's technically talk about it at Michigan, too. I think it's an apples to oranges comparison, though. So Penn State beat Michigan yesterday, 27 to 17, I want to say was the final. And the Michigan situation, I understand, does not make sense for a lot of you. It just doesn't compute. If you're an LSU football fan or if you're a Florida State fan, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Because you look and you say, hey, I'm not even a fan, but I'm just kind of watching because I love the sport. This program seems lifeless. And these players really do not seem engaged. And this head coach, he's, he's on autopilot, man. It's like lights are on, no one home, deer in the headlights sort of deal. Everything seems to be operating at like 50% capacity, and they're not going anywhere. They're just dead in the water. And so it makes sense to you that Jim Harbaugh should be on the hot seat, or maybe they already should have made a move. And at the very least, it seems it should be an inevitability in most of your minds that a change is imminent. Now, if you're a Michigan fan, or you're a Michigan alumni, or if you're a former player there, the situation makes a lot more sense. There's just a culture at Michigan. It's a little bit different. In fact, it's a, a world different than a lot of other places where football probably just matters a whole lot more and it leads to more swift decisions and actions. And sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes that's a bad thing. I um, say all that to say this. We've talked about Harbaugh a number of weeks in a row now. I, I don't really think yesterday changed anything in the sense of what's going to happen from the Michigan side of things. Now, here is a little more nuanced version and a little different avenue you have to go down. We're getting to the end of the 2020 season now. Michigan's not a good football team. Nothing about the rest of 2020 is going to change there. But here's what we do know. He's got one year left on his deal, which is 2021. And so as much as I'm telling you, I don't think on Michigan's end they're going to make a move, they do have to make one move. 
I highly doubt, and I would bet you a lot of money, that they are not going to enter the 2021 spring calendar or, or fall workouts or eventually the 2021 college football season and not have made a public move one way or the other on Harbaugh. And when I say public move, I mean announcing whether you're going to extend him or not. And even if you're not going to, in reality, extend him, you need to just extend him in window dressing terms uh, because you got a lot of staffs out there that are recruiting against Michigan. Some of you think this matters. Some of it doesn't. I happen to uh, subscribe to the theory that it does. Michigan's got a pretty good recruiting class put together right now. Do you understand how easy it is? It's not even negative recruiting. It's just honesty. If I can walk into your living room and say, wait a second, hold up. I am Ohio State. I'm Alabama. I'm, I'm whoever you're recruiting against. Uh, my coaching situation couldn't be any more stable. And yet you're telling me you're seriously considering the place where the head coach is about to work out the final year of his deal and no one even knows if he's going to be back. He can't even look you in the eye and tell you where he's going to be next year because his own employer has not found enough confidence in him to extend him. Is that really where you want to be? Okay, all oh, that's reality. Again, that's not even negative recruiting. That's just being straight up with a guy. I mean, that's like if you love warm weather and I'm Florida and I'm competing with Notre Dame for your signature, I'm going to show you that the average day in December is like, Partly cloudy, 34 degrees. I'm showing you that. That's not negative. That's reality. So they've got to make a decision one way or the other on how they are going to present his future to the public. That, I think, is the next step here. Now, that's from the Michigan side of things, because I don't think we're going to enter next year without the public having been informed where they stand one way or the other. But if you're a Michigan fan, or if you're just a curious onlooker, you know there's a second school of thought out there. Because I keep saying from the Michigan side, from the Michigan side, from the Michigan side. Well, there's also another side here, and that's Jim Harbaugh. And there's a school of thought that Jim Harbaugh certainly has not publicly confirmed. Also hasn't denied it, should be noted, but he's never confirmed this either. And so there's just wild speculation. And you know us, we're happy to dive into that. There's speculation, there's a school of thought that Jim Harbaugh's just a better fit in the NFL, right? He is a guy that uh, would value strategy and valuing tactics and being a tactician over recruiting and developing and, and investing all his energy to, to closing the gap. I would say imaginary, but it's totally real. And that exists in the NFL. Like in the NFL, they build it in order to crunch everyone up in the middle to where the brighter football mind and the better tactician and the better game day coach, like that's the kind of guy who shines in the NFL. In college football, well, if you enter into any given Saturday as the best tactician, but the other guy's got 21 points worth of a better roster than you before they ever kick the ball off, then that's not exactly your environment. So there's this school of thought that Jim Harbaugh is currently coaching in Ann Arbor, but if you've ever pulled up a map of Michigan, not too far down the road from Ann Arbor is Detroit. And Detroit just fired their head coach and GM yesterday, I want to say. And it's the only guy I've ever known that has the last name that matches my mom's first name, which is Matt Patricia. Well, he's out. So he took his pencil behind the ear and he's gone. And now, hey, you want to talk about recruiting? Well, maybe Lions Brass goes into Jim Harbaugh's living room and says, not only can we give you the, the platform that values strategery and a tactical mind, we can also tell you, you can live in your same house. You don't even have to move. And just instead of driving west to work every day, you just drive east and we'll give you a commuter card. We'll pay for your parking or whatever you need. We'll pay you a lot of money and we can get you out of that. And 
you won't look like a failure because you're going from college to the NFL. It just wasn't a good fit. So there's another school of thought that the way that you potentially could have a new coach at Michigan in 2021 would be a mutual parting of ways. I have zero reason to believe that's going to happen, but that doesn't mean it wouldn't happen or couldn't happen. I just don't have any insider knowledge on that. I wish I could tell you otherwise, but I don't. But if that were to happen, and if the Michigan job were open, I want to make two points right quick. You don't need to overthink the room here. Matt Campbell, by 10 miles, as just as I said, as is the case with Urban and Austin, Matt Campbell's the guy by 100 miles, not just 10, 100 miles. He's the candidate for you at Michigan. Uh, he is tearing it up at Iowa State. If you want to set aside two hours of your life, go ask a personnel type or a scouting type in the college or NFL industries about Matt Campbell. Go like this. Go, hey, what do you think about Matt Campbell? And then just put your pencil down, put your phone on silent, cross your arms, and just sit back. Because they're going to go and go and go about how great he is. Every aspect about his strength and conditioning program to his player personnel and evaluations, all that stuff. They will just go on and on and on. And so um, that would be the guy at Michigan. And secondly, here's the other point I wanted to address. Michigan's a great job. Everybody's going to get hung up on history and history. And Well, they've never done this, and historically they've been that. Dude, all it takes is the right coach. I've been trying to hammer this home. You never have a, a, a generational head coach until you have one. And then when you have one, you do everything you can to keep him and make him happy and give him all the resources. You thought that was Harbaugh at Michigan. At this point, clearly it's not. What if you were just one coach ahead of the curve? And what if this guy, the next guy, after maybe, maybe a mutual agreement to part ways, which again, we have no indication to believe is going to happen, just speculation at this point. But if it were to happen, man, he'd tear it up. You want the uh-oh factor. There'd be a lot of collective uh-oh around the Big Ten if Matt Campbell were to all of a sudden waltz to a podium in Ann Arbor, Michigan with maize and blue on, probably a sweater. I would guess a sweater at the introductory press conference. Would he bend the bill of the Michigan cap? That I don't know. Like Bo did it that way. I think Matt would do it that way. But point being, think about what I just said in closing here with this particular point before we talk about a lot of games from yesterday. We are at least entertaining the idea that Texas could come open Michigan could come open. Ironically, we are not entertaining the idea that Auburn could come open, and that's like an annual rite of passage. If you ever find yourself behind a desk with a microphone in front of you and you're covering college football, Auburn hot seat talks a staple. You write it in pen on your December calendar every year. Well, we don't have that, but we do have some big jobs that could be in play. All right, Colin, let's talk about games from either yesterday or Friday. Week 13 takeaways, a lot of them to get to here, so let's roll through them. Notre Dame, 31. North Carolina 17. Sometimes we dig really deep inside the box score for the padlock stat. Don't need to do that, at least with this game. The padlock stat was just on the scoreboard itself, 17. If I tell you North Carolina's hanging a 17, then I tell you Notre Dame's winning that thing and probably winning it going away. Now, if you want a secondary padlock stat that's a lot more in line with what we typically do, holding North Carolina's offense to 298 total yards that is getting it done for Brian Kelly and company. It was very thorough. There was, there was never that pull-away moment until the ending, but yet it was a game that felt like they were in control of most of the way. And boy, when that defense clamped down, it really clamped down. So the Notre Dame is overrated crowd has been out in force. They got a 24-hour head start this week because the game was on Friday. So I'm just asking you this. 
base it strictly on what your eyes have seen this year and not what a preseason magazine in July told you, okay? Or what a Vegas point spread tells you hypothetically because those things will change and they're market-based. I want you to answer me the following question. Besides Alabama, who in America looks definitively better than Notre Dame? A team that if I put them on the field with this Saturday, you would bet a paycheck would run Notre Dame off the field. The answer is that team doesn't exist. Okay, you can go to Ohio State if you want to. I just watched Indiana take them to the wire. This team wearing the golden helmets here is a little bit different caliber than Indiana. I, You could say Clemson. I just watched them play them a month ago, less than a month ago, a couple of weeks ago. DJ Uyangalale put up better stats than Trevor Lawrence has put up all year. It wasn't a deficiency at quarterback that cost Clemson. There were some defensive deficiencies. So if I put a couple of those dudes in the starting lineup, are they the difference in three or four touchdowns? You may think so. I certainly don't. So I love what Notre Dame looks like right now. Like I think they're a major player in the college football playoff picture. And until someone ranks them number one, and I've seen a couple of you do that, that's overrated. Notre Dame's not the number one team in the country. But if you got them two or three, I have no problem with that whatsoever. We have them three right now in our internal numbers. We got them as the third best team in the country. So I can't disagree all that much with that. And I do think that we are very much headed towards the possibility that we have two ACC teams in the college football playoff. That's a real possibility at this point. A&M 20, LSU 7. This game happened last night. I get the distinct impression, and I can't blame you, that it's the first time a lot of you have seen Texas A&M play this year because there was a lot of shock. And I don't really know where the shock came from, but again... I've watched A&M like five or six times this year. Maybe some of you haven't. There's been a lot going on this year. So maybe some of you just found your way to a TV set last night and you saw them in primetime. And there was a lot of shock, and I don't get it. So here were, the, here were the two parts of the shock. Number one, people were surprised that A&M didn't look like Alabama or look like Clemson. Well, they're not. They're not an elite team. They're not a great team. They're a very good team. There's a difference in the tiers. Okay, this is a very good team. They're not great. So there was a lot of shock that AM didn't look great. Well, they haven't been great all year. There's been no point where this team's been called great, at least on this show or anywhere else I've heard. Number two, there was a lot of surprise that, well, offensively, they looked limited at times. Well, they've been limited offensively all year. Uh, that's not going to change. But the whole point is we've known after they've had injuries and opt-outs at wide receiver, they don't have an elite option at wide out. So if you face a team like you did with LSU last night, that as deficient as they may be, has some talent in the defensive backfield, you're not moving the ball up and down the field on them if you're Texas A&M. Now, conversely, LSU is going to play Alabama Saturday. Probably going to be a little bit different story. But they're playing A&M. So A&M, they had to, they had to crowbar them. That's how they have to win these sorts of games. So we've known they're not elite at wide receiver. And we also have known another thing. They have continued just like Alabama. They've kind of trended the same way as Alabama has defensively. They've got a really good unit defensively. And so once Jimbo Fisher saw, number one, his defense was locking down LSU, and number two, it's pouring down rain out here, once he saw those two factors, uh, they packed it in. They pulled a good old-fashioned Kirby Smart last night is what they did, and they said, we'll take the win. They went into a win-as-a-win mode last night. And in those kinds of games, they are. Now, if you're playing UT Chattanooga, not so much. You want to get some margin there. But they won, and it just was what it was. Now, as for LSU, Terrace Marshall has announced that he is opting out of the rest of the season. I had one of our esteemed viewers ask me in my DMs today, why are you calling quitting opting out? Semantics, friend. 
Terrence Marshall, Terrace Marshall, excuse me, has opted out. Uh, you can call it whatever you want to. He will not be on the field Saturday against Alabama, nor will he at any other point this year. Now, what I did not take too kindly to yesterday, I don't know how Steve Ensminger feels about it, but I did not necessarily love listening to Ed Orgeron's comments in the postgame where he said he was not particularly pleased with the offensive plan they had, and he would have liked to have seen a different plan. Well, I got good news for Ed Orgeron. I checked this morning, and according to LSU's official website, he is the head football coach there, which means every plan that's going to be implemented in the football games they play Saturday has to come across his desk for approval. And if it's not, then it's a dereliction of duty on his part. But if they are and he signs off on it, he has no one to be upset with but himself. So I don't care about what he feels about his offensive coordinator. And to be honest, you can handle that internally. I don't need to hear Ed Orgeron telling me about how he's unhappy with how an offensive coordinator called a game or the overall plan they had in place. That's your plan, man. You signed off on it. So your plan didn't work out. It wasn't Steve Ensminger's plan. It was your plan that didn't work out. That's why they pay you the kind of money they pay you, to shoulder that kind of stuff. There are a lot of coaches out there. You need to listen closely in these postgame pressers, the ones that are going to have some longevity about themselves. It is we, we, we when they win, and it is me, me, me when they lose. It's the antithesis. It's the total inverse of what society is like. That's why society is making far less money, shall we say, than a major college football head coach. Got to be a little bit different there. Again, Alabama plays LSU Saturday. Alabama opens up as nearly a four-touchdown underdog. There is not a number high enough on this game. I'm telling you, there are players at Alabama who would have gone in the first round of the NFL draft who internally let it be known they returned to play this game. That's how much that game against LSU means. They fought behind the scenes as hard as you would ever see anyone fight to make this game happen. So as we sit here Sunday, it's on, and it's a four-touchdown spread, and uh, hashtag prayers for Tigers. A&M, meanwhile, is going to Auburn Saturday. Now, this is a very consequential game for both teams. A&M, the number's been kind of weird. Like I was, Trey Scott was telling me earlier today, FanDuel had this thing at A&M minus two. Well, right now I'm looking across the board and the consensus is A&M by about six. Those are the numbers right now. We'll talk about that more Tuesday, obviously. Oregon State took down Oregon 41 to 38. I was driving back from Columbus to Nashville and I was listening to this game on the radio. So hat tip to the Oregon State radio team did a really good job of seeing through the fog and as best they could describing what was happening. It helped that the teams were wearing highlighter jerseys. Um, I don't know what to tell you, man. Oregon just flat out got outplayed here. It's not necessarily something you expect to say, but it's been weird all year with Oregon. We got a few games sample size under our belts now, and the thing that's happening there is I just used the word inverse. Well, Oregon's kind of in inverse territory, too. They had all these new pieces offensively. Offensive line, quarterback, you, you know the deal. And so you expect them to have to be carried by their defense early on. And yet offense is putting up big numbers. Um, they're doing enough to win, certainly. And they scored 41 in this game, even with three turnovers. And yet it's defense that can't get off the field, can't make stops. And it's just been weird. Um, I mean, who knows, really, what, what's going to happen here the rest of the year. I know that there was a pretty widely adhered to talking point that I agree with that once Oregon lost this game for all intents and purposes the Pac-12 is out of the college football playoff conversation um there is a 95 percent certainty that that's true in in meteorology you talk about non-zero chances well there's a non-zero chance that the Pac-12 could still make the playoff Washington's undefeated more on Washington in a little while in a different format or a different segment of this show Uh, USC shockingly is still undefeated Yes, they're technically in it, 
But I say technically because we understand what reality is here. But, I mean, Oregon understands right now, and Mario Cristobal and that staff understand they're not where they need to be defensively. Therefore, they have to take more risk than they want to on offense. And what happens is, yeah, they've been able to put up some pretty impressive numbers, but inevitably it was going to bite them eventually in the form of turnovers. And they were minus three turnovers in this game. And when you lose a game by a field goal, that's probably the padlock stat that you need to know about. Georgia beat South Carolina 45-16 to last night. You can see this game plan coming a mile away. The week before, there was a lot of talk about JT Daniels, and they, they barely got past Mississippi State, but they got past them. And uh, I was sitting here last Sunday night, and I said, hey, I don't know what the future of Georgia football is going to be, but I can promise you this. What you saw tonight is not going to be now or ever the future of Georgia football as long as Kirby Smart's there. They had eight yards rushing last week. I think I've heard that stat a million times so far in the past seven days. They had eight yards rushing. JT Daniels had to throw it all over the place. And for a lot of folks who wanted hope about the quarterback position, that was great to see. That's not what Kirby Smart wants. Last night, they had a 3-to-1 run-to-pass ratio. They ran it 46 times for 332 yards, four touchdowns, 7.2 yards per carry. Uh, That was coming, again, from a mile away. They are in the mode that several teams find themselves in right now. Georgia's just kind of a more talented version of what a lot of other teams are. Uh, Their preseason goals are out the window. Yet they have a lot of work to do. Uh, There's a standard they want to maintain and adhere to. But there's also, you know, there's also kind of this mentality that the 2021 season has started, especially for them at quarterback right now. And you look at guys who are emerging like Jermaine Burton, didn't do a whole lot last night, but in general at the wide receiver spot. I mean, there are a lot of Georgia folks who are looking around and saying, wait a second, quarterback's not going to be a question for us if JT Daniels comes back and pretty pretty good likelihood he will and we got all these receivers and we got all this talent here and, and some of them are just now starting to emerge it's like yeah we're not going to go to the sec title game this year but hey man let's let's start implementing whatever we're going to do in 2021 now and so they're doing that but it feels like in other ways half the sport's just kind of trying to limp to the finish line and there's a lot to be taken advantage of monetarily out there because of that and we'll talk about that at the end of the show michigan state I'm going to talk about monetary leveraging. How about what happened yesterday? So Michigan State goes into the Northwestern game as a 13.5 point dog. They win the game outright 29 to 20. Now, we did not make Michigan State an official play. Uh, it, was, it was a borderline for us, but we didn't. However, it had my eye. We didn't break the game down, but it had my eye. But let me tell you, this game turned into an absolute gold mine. For those of you who understand live betting, this game turned into a gold mine. So A lot of the early lines that are put out, yes, there's algorithm that's involved, but a human being is tweaking those lines before they put opening numbers out. But when you're talking about live betting, there are too many games going on. So it's largely algorithmically driven, which means there is a pre-described process or determined process that goes into how a number changes in a live game based on what's happening every given play. Well, here's the thing. When you got a team that struggles to score that's favored by 13 and a half points, the algorithm only knows that the team's favored by 13 and a half points. And so it ingests former data points of 13 and a half point favorite is currently down by two touchdowns. What should the live number be? So yesterday, Northwestern gets down by two scores, two touchdowns early. And Michigan State was still either even money or even plus money on the money line. So in other words, there was a situation yesterday and I dumped my whole account on it pretty much, fortunately, where Michigan State was up by two scores on a team that struggles to score, and you could have got one-to-one return on your money just betting them to win the game. 
Don't have to cover any number, just win the game. And it took a while for the algorithm, the old live betting algorithm to catch up there. But man, I mean, I was talking to Bud Elliott during the game. <laughs> we were saying, is this an error? Like, when is, when is the adjustment going to come? And it was sitting there for 20, 25 minutes of real time. But that was uh, crazy to see. So, I mean, live betting, there's a lot of value there. If you understand what you're doing, let me say that very slowly, please don't ride your gut on that stuff. Northwestern was minus three turnovers. That's really the padlock stat and all you need to know about that. Uh, they, are, they are a zero margin for error team. Not a low margin, zero margin for error. And with this loss at the hands of Michigan State, now Northwestern knocked from the ranks of the unbeaten. The Big Ten picture just continues to change by the week, which is what we're about to talk about right now. The college football playoff committee could be headed for just a disastrous confluence of events. And you know how very rarely I use that combination of words. Let me ask something, because I did it on Twitter earlier today, and I got a very fascinating split of opinion. What value do you place on games? Because ultimately, the value you place on games and the value you place on competition, those values will determine where you land on the hypothetical debate I'm about to throw out there that I think is going to become a reality in the not-too-distant future. Uh, There's a potential mess down the road. And so seeing it ahead of time, and it's not that hard to see, I take to Twitter earlier today. And I said, you are the deciding vote on the college football playoff committee, okay? And let's just say for for hypothetical sakes purposes, the last spot in the playoff field is coming down to two teams. The first team is a 9-1 Texas A&M team. No SEC championship, just 9-1. The second team is a 6-0 Ohio State that did not play enough games to go to the Big Ten title game. And the only way they got a sixth under their belt is the Big Ten has them play a game on conference championship Saturday, just not in the conference title. If Ohio State is not able to play this Saturday, that's where we're headed. If they don't play Saturday, if they can't field a team, if they can't get on the field against Michigan State or Michigan for for that matter, they will not meet the minimum requirements to go to the Big Ten title game. And so there is just this fascinating dichotomy of opinion out there right now And that's the situation that's at hand. I know a lot of you, you kind of heard bits and pieces of this, but like I said, a lot of folks' lives are fragmented right now. So you don't necessarily have time to pay attention to every single turn of the uh, world of college football. So what's happening and what's changed from August really is in August, you kind of looked and once you found out who was going to be playing, you said, all right, four-team playoff. Let's see how it's going to work out. Well, the SEC champ is going to go, and the Big Ten champ is going to go. Translation, Alabama's going to win this. Ohio State's going to win that. Clemson's going to win this one over here. And those are three spots we just have locked in. And then there's going to be a fourth spot. Maybe it's Oklahoma if they win the Big 12. Maybe it's Oregon if they win the Pac-12. And that was going to be the big debate, right? Well, what's changed here? What's changed is the Pac-12's cooked in all likelihood, so, so they're out of the equation. The Big 12's probably cooked, although there is this backdoor case being made for Oklahoma that I'm not ready to entertain quite yet. Never say never, but quite yet. Got to get over Iowa State first. And thirdly, really there's four points to this. Thirdly, Notre Dame threw a wrench in everyone's plans where they beat Clemson. And so now you got the potential for two ACC teams being there, but also Ohio State unfortunately plays in a conference that doesn't take football as seriously as they do. So a lot of what I'm about to say sounds like I'm hating on Ohio State. Oh, it's far from that. Far from that. I got immense respect for Ohio State. I pull for them at every turn because a ton of you guys watch the channel. But I got to be real with you tonight, too. You are in all likelihood going to end up suffering 
at the hands of incompetence at the league and administrative level. So a lot of what we're about to talk about has nothing to do or no fault, shall I say, should be placed at the feet of Ohio State. But you had the Illinois game canceled, and you had the Maryland game canceled, and now, man, they're one more. They're one more away. Again, if you're unfamiliar with what's going on here, if they miss either one of these next two games and they don't go to that Big Ten title game, there are a lot of hypotheticals. But, man, the one I just gave you about Ohio State and, let's say, a Texas A&M, it got fiery today. So let's go back to the question. How much do you value competition and games being played? Because that will answer the following question here. When you're choosing which one of these to go with, because if we're choosing, I'm going to tell you where I stand right here. If you're asking me to choose between a 9-1 and Texas A&M or a 6-0 and Ohio State, this takes two seconds for me. And it's that team right there, Colin, showing you. It's Jimbo Fisher and the Aggies. Here's the pushback I'm getting on this. Some of you are yelling as I'm speaking. Here's the pushback I'm going to get. And it's going to shock you that I'm not even going to push back or I'm not going to retaliate. You would say, how in the world can you take A&M over Ohio State? Ohio State's better than A&M. I think I agree with you. I'm confident that you're right when you say that. The second thing you say is, well, it's not Ohio State's fault that we couldn't play the games. You're right about that. But to both of those statements, I say, and? And, and what, is it A&M's fault? No. Is it the SEC's fault? No. It's the Big Ten's fault. So ultimately, the Big Ten's not going to pay a price. It's member institution that has the best shot at the playoff could potentially pay the price. But these are called consequences. Every action has one. Could be positive, could be negative. But, I mean, it sounds like we agree. You know, when you say, well, is Ohio State better? Yeah. Well, is, is it their fault? No. Okay, sounds like we agree. Ohio State should go. No, they shouldn't. There is a side effect of gambling culture that I've noticed. It's become a lot more pervasive over the past couple of years. As gambling and sports betting have become legalized, I mean, there's some good things. Like you don't have to bet with a guy named Rico in the Cayman Islands anymore. You can just bet on your phone at your convenience and get the money in 48 hours. You don't have to go on the corner of 9th and Broad and see Terry on Tuesday morning to even up with him. Those are good aspects of sports betting being legalized. Let the individual handle their income however they want to. But here's one negative side effect of it. Everyone thinks they're an expert on this stuff now. And anytime there's a debate about the college football playoff, you're pulling out the old so-and-so would be favored over so-and-so on a neutral field. Guys, we've been having that conversation for a decade. Well, however long this thing's been around. That's old hat. Everyone understands that logic. You think that you're beating someone over the head with your superior intellect when you say that, and you're not. Everyone understands who would be favored over who if it were Buckeyes Aggies this Saturday or a month down the road if this stuff ends up playing out. We understand that. But here's what else I understand. I value games I value you putting yourself out there, in this case, four more times than the other guy. And I'll tell you why that's important in just a second, if you can't already pick up on it with common sense. Who would be favored against who should only be valued in a tiebreaker scenario? I want to make this really, really clear. Who would be favored against who? That stuff matters if your resumes are equal. These resumes wouldn't be equal. So therefore, a lot of that who would be favored against who or who I think the better team is, is irrelevant. If I still make it relevant, if I think resume A is superior to resume B, but then I still say, oh, screw it though. I still think resume B has got the better team. I'm just running a preview magazine. We're not even calling, it's not even a sport at that point. It's not competition at that point. You're not even going on a merit-based formula at all. There is no more meritocracy. It is strictly, okay, go play the season, but I don't know, put these teams in there anyway. What in the world are you doing at that point? And so then I had someone DM me about 30 minutes ago, 
and you made a really good, Jeffrey, I think it was, you made a really good point. Um, I don't agree with your conclusion, but you made a really good point. It's one where I agree with you on the surface, but when you get below the surface, I don't agree because uh, the bigger picture you were trying to paint is false. So the canceled games right now, let's talk through this. Because here's the frustration if you're an Ohio State fan. The games that you've had canceled, they weren't games you were going to lose in all likelihood. It was going to be Illinois and Maryland. Like you're, you're a huge four-touchdown favorite over both of them. You know that you were going to skull-drag them, paint the walls with their blood, etc., whatever you want to use. And so you're thinking to yourself, why can't people just understand that we would have beat those teams? I mean, why can't we just pencil in those two wins for, for argument's sake? No one thinks that we were going to lose those games. Well, you're right about that. You're right about that. But see... Here's the value of competition, and here's the value of a game, or games in this case, within the context of choosing the four-team field for the college football playoff. How significant is the date November 16th, 2019 to you? Here's why games matter, and here's why I'm going to give benefit of the doubt to teams that have played more games. November 16th, 2019 was not a spectacular day. It wasn't noteworthy particularly. Alabama was a 21-point favorite over a team. Alabama ended up winning the game 38-7, to so they covered by 10 points. What does this have to do with anything? This sounds dumb. Well, here's what happened. Alabama went to Starkville, Mississippi on November 16th of 2019, and they were a big favorite, just like you would have been against Illinois, just like you would have been against Maryland. And they did smoke them, just like in all likelihood you would do against Illinois or Maryland. But here's what else happened. What else happened is... There was a play when they were up, I think, already five touchdowns or so, and a quarterback drops back, and there's no one open to his left, and there's no one open to his right, and so he peels off to his left like he's done a million times before, but he's hobbled, and a defender catches up on backside pursuit and falls with the force of his full body weight on this quarterback. The kid's name was Tuatunga Vailoa. His hip shattered into a million pieces. Alabama's team wasn't the same since that point. The rest of the way. What you can't know unless you play the game, is what kind of critical factors could happen in that game, what kind of injuries you could incur in that game that you never exposed yourself to, that the other guys you're comparing yourself to did expose themselves to. That's why the four more games matter, even if you'd be favored by a million in every one of those games. So again, this may not end up happening at all. It may end up that Ohio State gets their games in, and they end up winning the Big Ten by four or five touchdowns, and they end up going to the college football playoff all's well and good. I just wanted to get on the record early with this because I know this debate is only going to heat up. I mean, for that matter, A&M could lose Saturday against Auburn and it could be all rendered moot. But if it comes down to it, I think that committee is going to value games played. And if you have to pay a penance for the incompetence of your league office, so be it. I won't like it, but so be it. All right, let's wrap it up with this, Colin. Ramen Noodle Express time. We went four and two this week. Wasn't happy about the way things went down in Stillwater, but still 4-2. and two. So we'll take that. We're sitting at 58% against the number on the year. And we've got two early best bets here. Make sure you're following me on Twitter. We had, I think, two games that I put out, maybe three, ahead of, and on in addition to, rather, what we put out on the show last week. And that happens routinely. It'll probably happen again this week. So follow me on Twitter, at LateKickJosh. All right, Colin, let's show them what we have so far. Uh, this hurts, but it is what it is. We are going against my Iowa State Cyclones this week. Um, yeah, I was going to make an analogy, but it's a poor one. So West Virginia plus seven. That number is going to move off seven, I think. So make sure you jump on that one. And Washington only laying 10. We have Washington favored by 19 and a half 
in our internal numbers. We think this line's way off. So we're taking the Huskies minus 10 against Stanford. So our first two, our best bets, West Virginia plus 7, Washington minus 10. Also a reminder, we're past Thanksgiving week now. I hit the reset button for my one-on-one Zoom consultations. We got spots open all week. As soon as I get off the air tonight, I will open my email inbox up. I will open my Twitter DMs up and I will start booking those sessions. If you think you have the skill, if you think you have the talent, if you got great ideas, if you want to get involved in the sports media industry you ever have or ever think you're going to, but you just don't know how, you don't necessarily have a game plan worked out, hit me up in the email inbox or Twitter. At Late Kick Josh on Twitter, joshpate706, gmail.com, and we'll get something set up. For Director Colin, for Jordan on the podcast side of things, I'm Josh Pate. Make sure you're subscribed to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. There is a lot, inevitably, that's going to happen this week, and you can find it all there. Until then, we'll see you again Tuesday night. Have a great start to your week, and God bless. God bless.